Hey guys. All right, before we start the episode, I want to issue a disclaimer and a trigger warning. As you all know, Chandler and I are not trained psychologists, therapists, or experts on any of the very serious and heavy subjects that are involved with discussing all things Nexium and coercion and control groups. The Pop Apologist podcast is a weekly casual conversation about all things happening in popular culture. To that end, we approached our conversation with India through the perspective of fascinated friends asking our most burning questions. While our conversation was playful at times, we understand that these matters are extremely serious and real, and we talked with India ahead of time to make sure she was okay with us taking a more lighthearted approach. We were definitely not trying to be insensitive. We were just trying to stay in our lane, and India knew that and was on board. And here's the trigger warning. This episode contains references to victims of human trafficking, sex trafficking, coercion and control groups, and sexual abuse. If you have been a victim of any of these crimes, we recommend skipping this episode, and we've included a link to RAIN, an organization that seeks to help victims of sexual violence, in the show notes. And with that said, we'll start the episode. Today, we are joined, it has stunned our audience, shocked everyone who knows us and loves us. Um, we are joined by India Oxenberg, star of the documentary Seduced on Stars, and author of her memoir, Still Learning, which I literally just reread. Thank you so much, India, for coming oh, on the pod. thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be with you guys. I, I, I was laughing a lot, even to my own fiance. I was like, they, they thought that it was a joke that I was coming on. I was like, why would you think that? Of course I'm going to – I mean, if I can, I always respond to, to people who I really am looking forward to speaking with. So it's so nice. And I was really sold by the two sisters. I, I will be honest oh. with that because I am a sister of many and I – and and I feel like that's a really powerful and important bond to to promote and support. Oh my gosh, that's so kind of you, really. Truly, thank you so much. My um, pleasure. Okay, so before we dive in, India, to all things Nexium related, yes. I have to know. We have to actually take it back to your family roots. Sure. Because one of my favorite parts of um, the vow on HBO was when your mom casually referred to Charles, her <laughs> relative. <laughs> so here's my uh-huh. question, India. Yes. Did, Cha- did Charles, Charles, did Charles <laughs> relate any sort of um, statement about the Meghan Markle interview that he wanted you to relate today on Pop Apologist? <laughs> Uh, absolutely not. I'm so sorry, but I do not have a message from, from the palace, unfortunately. The roots, the blood is there, the bloodline is there, but the direct line of contact is not. So I will leave that to my mother. If uh, if and when she gets a message, she can relay. But yeah. that is so, so funny. I know. I, you know, I actually... Um, I remember hearing about that line in the vow too. I haven't watched the vow yet. Um, I think I needed a little break from Nexium, to be honest. So I took a pause totally and I was like, fine. I'll get back to that later when I'm not in like full on PTSD from all of the press. But, sure. um, <laughs> but I remember them making a remark, making, um, like a sort of a joke about how my mom 
referred to contacting <laughs> Prince Charles, but but in all seriousness, like my mom was really looking for anybody and any type of help. So it, it is really something that you would say. <laughs> right. It's so funny. I mean, okay, I have to know, I have to know as someone with a true connection to the royal family, like what you think of the whole debacle. And did you watch the interview? Do you have I watched a hot some. I watched some of it. I feel like it's such a complicated story. I mean, and I am really someone who wants to be there and to champion women above all things, because that's, mm-hmm. that's the position that I take. And I, I really want to be the type of person that is there to promote the truth. And that's the way that I like to speak about things. And my experiences are just like with truth and with facts. And because I, I don't personally know Meghan Markle, I don't know Harry personally, I don't know uh, Charles personally, my mom and my grandma do know some of those people more personally. And so it's just so hard to say when things get taken by the media and by the news, what is the truth? Like, what's the root of the truth here? Mm -hmm. And and so I've kind of, I've been going back and forth myself, you know, reading different articles, reviewing the uh, fact checking that was done even just by someone like a Daily Mail. I was trying to get all information and all sides and be as fair as possible. And I just, I just hope that the truth really is clear to people eventually and that there is the proper, you know, proper plan to fix whatever has been done to, mm-hmm. to both, to both sides, because there's always two sides to every story. Like you, like we've seen with Nexium, and then there's always definite truths and those right. do come out and those are revealed and, the, and it's clear, but then it's up to people to decide what they personally believe. And I know what it's like to be on the other end of a media shitstorm. Mm-hmm. And so I feel for her in that sense because I know how uncomfortable and scary that was for me. The first time that it happened, it was not my choice. And I felt like it was happening at me. Mm. And that was scary. And I felt like everyone was just in my underwear drawer, oh, <laughs> my you know, like making comments, right. passing judgments, and the same thing that they do with her. And that they do with the queen and they do, you know, you do with most people that people have opinions about it. There's always personal and then more practical truths. And so I think it's your job as a consumer or a pop culture analyst to do the best that you can to get to the truth. And that's not just taking everything at face value. Okay. So do you think that Megan, that in the interview that she was telling the truth? I want to hope she was, yes, and I think okay. she and I think she was telling a lot of truths, and yeah, I think totally. there's and I think there are things that maybe were more um, about her own personal feelings, and that's mm-hmm, something that mm-hmm. she only knows, and, right, and, and so that's why it's like. I would never go and say, oh, well, she's lying, like straight up lying. I could I could say, oh, well, maybe, you know, that thing was taken out of context or maybe that was totally. exactly how it was said. And this is her right and her opinion is valid. So mm-hmm, it's really, right. I, I really don't know the extent of it, but I, I, I want to believe that she was telling the truth because why would somebody go out there to, and take somebody down, else down like that to yeah. me? That I, I don't like thinking that that's the world that we live in. Although mm-hmm. I do know that that happens. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, okay, so I just want to – this is a message that you can give from the pop apologist to Charles, which is that <laughs> when he does want to come out and share his story, same with Kate, same with mm-hmm. Wills. Yeah, the will entire family. happily, happily have them on the podcast <laughs> If I if I ever get in touch with them, I will let them know. But I really do hope that they 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 come out and and set the record straight, and so and and so that people can really just decide who they want to support. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. And, and really, I I support people who who put themselves out there and that are willing to be vulnerable and willing to talk about tough things, which she did all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so. Absolutely. And I don't want to say that I'm unsupportive of, you know, a distant family member, but I don't really have a connection to them. The connection that I have is to my grandmother and to my mom, and I support them individually, separate from that. Well, and I think, like, the lack thereof of – I mean, they did make a statement, but I think, you know, it was so powerful for Megan to speak so openly. And I think if they were to do anything even close to that, like, I think it would endear a lot of people to them. But I think it's the secrecy and, you know, not, not speaking about it. Yeah. That makes it seem more salacious. Well, it, it also makes them so much less approachable. Yes. And like what mm-hmm. Megan did was, you know, in a lot of ways, she's humanizing herself mm-hmm. by talking about these things. It's difficult because it's done on live television. And all of that is, you know, a whole other beast to right. deal with and to analyze <laughs> and, and to edit and to whatnot, as you guys know. Yeah, uh, sure so, so there's that too. And, and, I uh, like I wish <laughs> like I'm just trying I'm projecting onto her a lot because of just having gone through a whole bunch of media stuff myself but yeah. like there's so many things that I wish that I could have just dealt with on a personal level that would not have made it to mainstream media and I wonder yeah. and I wonder sometimes if she wished that too like I, I feel like going to the media is the last resort yeah, and, totally. And, and you have to really, really be at a level of intolerance. Yeah. At least that's what I think and believe that you actually go there and use that because there's no turning back. Like right. once you, once you put it out there, it's out there in the world. And and I even just for myself feel very protective of my own privacy. And I and I was wondering if she was feeling that too. So I, yeah. I sympathize. I sympathize with anybody who goes out and puts themselves out there because I know that that is a very very difficult decision. Absolutely. Well, okay. Moving from little hard left turn, moving Mm -hmm. from the Royals, because I know that's not what you came on to talk about today. Um, (laughs) I, so I want to tell you that Chandler and I recapped literally every episode of The Val and every episode of Seduced for our listeners. So our listeners have a PhD in all things Nexium. (laughs) Oh my God, guys, this is really impressive. (laughs) It's pretty incredible. Um, So you're not going to have to um, explain acronyms like ESP today or Mm -hmm. SOP. Or SASHES. No. The Stripe Path. Absolutely. Wow. they get the terminology. They basically like could go to Albany at any time and speak the lingo. <laughs> oh my god! Undercover ex Nexium infiltrator. <laughs> Literally. 
Absolutely. So we're not going to um, ask you to relive everything and basically like redo the whole story. Mm-hmm. So this is an, a notification to listeners. If you're a new listener and you haven't already watched one of the documentaries, we're not going to redo that work. I recommend you go and watch this. The documentary on stars actually is so much more interesting in my opinion and just goes at it from a much more psychological point of view, very in-depth. So go watch that if you haven't. And we are going to cut straight to more in-depth questions. That way we kind of get to the heart of things, if that's cool with you. Yes, I'd love that. Perfect. Okay. Okay. I feel like I just am talking to my friends at this point then. You are, truly. (laughs) That are like, oh, do we have to talk about Nexium anymore? I'm like, no. (laughs) But but we we can recap. I love it. Um, okay, so the first question I have is actually Albany related. Um, sure. And I don't want to offend all of our listeners in Albany. Um, like, you know, the two listeners maybe or probably zero. Yeah, probably zero. <laughs> let's just let's just enter a world where you have the Bronfman sisters cash, okay? And you can live wherever you want, set up shop wherever you want. Why on earth was this thing in Albany, New York? That was Keith. So, okay. yeah. Like, why would he from choose there? That? He's not from, he's from, I think it's not Rochester. No, not Rochester, but some other place in New York that he grew up in that I've clearly <laughs> not cared to remember. <laughs> and, and he grew up there. And I remember asking him, we were on a walk once. And um, I was like, why Albany? Because first of all, I hate the cold. Like Ugh. you can ask anybody who knows me personally. And I'm just like, not, I'm not into it. I, I, I can get the right cute clothes, the gloves, <laughs> but I always have to stick those little hand warmers in my pockets mm-hmm. or in my shoes because my circulation sucks. And so I just am not a cold weather girl. I'm from Southern California, yeah. born and bred. And so I remember we were on a walk. It was cold. And I am like, why here? And he told some stupid story about how the that he got on a bus and that when he got off of the bus and arrived to Albany, everyone was smiling, and he thought that was a good idea. And I and I was like, like I, obviously I didn't say this because that was not the place that I was in yeah. at the time, and I was you know trying to be respectful and trying to be obedient and all all things DOS related, and. But in the back of my mind, I'm like, really? That's why you chose to be here? It's like pretty, pretty boring. <laughs> and, and, and then he continued to add additionally why he thought it was a good place for the Nexium headquarters to be is that because it was challenging to get to and that anybody who was willing to get there, whether it was by train, plane, car or walking, was going to have a hard time. And that was going to be a testament to their commitment of loyalty. And I was like, okay, well, that I can buy because this is a horrible place to try to get to. I always have to take a connecting flight. And there's always, I always get stuck in Chicago. I love it. So so that was really the story that I got. The truth, I actually don't know the truth. I think it was because he went to uh, university there and then he's kind of a, you know, a creature of habit and just never yeah. laughs. And then he starts like a real lack of imagination. V- yeah. And <laughs> more ways than one. But I think for, for him, he was just like comfortable there. And then he started to create his, you know, really what eventually became his harem 
But that was his mm-hmm. core group of women that he started CBI with back in the 90s. And they lived mm-hmm. in the right. same complex. Mm-hmm. I, mean, Wait, I mean, not a complex, but a, a same, uh, townhomes. same townhomes. Yeah, they upgraded oh eventually as they started to make more money. But they owned a lot of the same townhomes in, in Knox Woods and Clifton Park. So one thing I always thought about, like, watching the documentaries was, like, what were the other neighbors thinking when you guys would go on these, like, walks late at night? Like, what were the what were the neighbors' situations like? <laughs> I don't think they liked it, but I was oblivious to that at the right, time. yeah. And I was just thinking, like, it's just me and my little Nexium world. And, like, <laughs> you know, like, totally lost and brainwashed. And so... I think for a majority of the neighbors, they were aware of Keith Raniere and mm-hmm. they did not like him. And there yeah. were oh, appar- I'm sure. there are apparently um, people who are communicating with the Frank report that lived in the, oh. the neighborhood. And they were kind of giving him up to date intel on what okay. he was doing and who he was with. See, I feel like, and I don't want to dwell on this too much, but I just feel like if my neighbor was taking like 3 a.m. walks with like different women each night and was like, I don't know, um, always like sweaty from a volleyball game, <laughs> I, I, I feel like I would be highly entertained by the whole debacle and it would just be like, pass the popcorn. I hope this guy stays forever. <laughs> yeah, unless oh you start unless you start reading about him online, which right. I mean, I think- a quick Google I think search. Those, yeah, a quick Google search and you'll be like, ugh, I don't want this guy in my yeah. neighborhood. But sadly, <laughs> that we were we were advised against that. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, speaking of volleyball nights, this is another question I have. Um, so I am a Meghan Markle's pro bono defense attorney. I'm not sure if you know that. I'm un- unretained, but I am <laughs> of counsel. Oh, well, then maybe I hope that my, my answer was somewhat helpful or, or informative. <laughs> I know it it was vague. I know it was vague, but I'm trying. I'm actually trying to figure out all these things myself too. So I'm glad to be in the company of her representation. (laughs) Yeah, it helped me with the case. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, But one of the things that I, as as an attorney speaking, when I was thinking about Keith's defense, right, one of the things that I would have said as his defense attorney, I would have said, "Have you seen pictures of this guy at?" the volleyball game. Do you really think that a man who wants to start a sex cult is going to invite women to see him there regularly? (laughs) And that's my question is how on earth, I guess, did like, how on earth did, did people find him attractive, especially attractive enough (sighs) to like leave their entire lives, leave their families, et cetera? You know, I have thought about this a lot because he was not the reason why I signed up for Nexium or ESP in the first place. Like he was kind of the last level. I mean, he was the the least interesting part to me, and wow. and that and, and that's not the the case for everybody. So I'm just speaking for myself. Like the fact that they were promoting him as you know the smartest man in the world, mm-hmm. this guy, you know, this elite problem solver, all the the propaganda that they spread about him. Really, I didn't care. Because yeah. I, I and and just to like go back to the way that I was raised, I was raised in Los Angeles. My parents are actors. I was surrounded by people who you know had different levels of fame or you know interest interesting people. I've traveled in my life. I've had a lot of opportunity in that in that sense. And so for me, I wasn't starstruck by Keith Rainier. Mm-hmm. And okay. and there, I think a lot of people were because for them, they thought, oh well 
if this guy is who they're saying he is, this is the man that I want to learn from. And really, yeah. I went to Nexium because I thought I was missing skills and that I was going to be getting a practical MBA that was going to help me advance myself in my life. That had nothing mm-hmm. to do with Keith. The mm-hmm. only reason that Keith even entered my life in the way that he did was because I was recruited into DOS. Mm, right. And I was in, and I was instructed to relocate by Allison Mack and I was instructed to live with her, which all came through Keith's directive. Right. right. Without my knowing. My attraction to him was something that was that was not natural. Like I had right. to, it was yeah. forced by the circumstance. There's other people who are attracted to him for many different reasons. Some people thought that he was like a messiah. Some people mm-hmm. thought that he was, you know, their boyfriend, like their legit part life partner because yeah. he played with people. And that, that, that goes back to more of his psychology and, and the way that he thinks is that he uses and plays with people depending on their vulnerabilities so mm-hmm. if he knew that you were sexually attracted, he might engage with you in that way or not, depending on what he thought your response would be. Right. I mean, just from watching and all the things that, you know. Does that make watched, sense? Yeah, yeah. totally. Okay. I mean, totally makes sense. So like when you were living in Los Angeles, you were you didn't really have like much in, interaction with him. No, not at all. I was actually kind of nervous about him. He was like the, you know the principle of principles. Yeah. And so I wanted to just do really well, especially when I was an ESP coach, I was like, well, I really want to do well. And I, you know, hopefully this will help Keith and Nancy and move the mission forward. And I was very much indoctrinated into that mindset. Right. And so I admired him, but I wasn't attracted to him. That, that kind of feeling of like awe came through what we were doing in DOS and that was all mm-hmm. implemented into us. Like we were made to think and feel that way. So did yeah. that, so did that attraction or that like feeling drawn to him, did that begin? Did that ever come to you it at did. any point? Okay. It did. But, it, and it also felt really confusing and uncomfortable mm. because even though I was not like sexually attracted to him, mm-hmm. I was trying to do my best in in you know the structure of DOS to not be combative <laughs> mm-hmm. to yeah, not totally. to not be somebody who was going to be on Allison's shit list so if that mm-hmm. meant playing the role of you know I'll you're my friend and we're getting to know each other and I'll flirt with you which really started with the seduction assignment specifically right I knew I had to do that but I was very mm-hmm. resistant right yeah okay speaking of Allison Um, I'm so curious how you feel like, okay, so you know what it's like, obviously to basically be, I mean, is this term okay, but brainwashed, like to fully be under a spell. Yeah. And I used to be so, so hurt by, and and feel really embarrassed by that kind of term because I thought that (laughs) it makes me emotional now because I thought that people were just going to like typecast me as like that brainwashed sex slave girl, which they did. And and but it is a real term and it's a real thing and it's uh it's more common than we think i think nowadays it's probably uh, better yeah. better to look at it as influence and coercion mm-hmm, because those right. are easier terms like brainwashing can be you know it's a little po- you know a little less polished but it's mm-hmm, fine totally. to use so so but having so having been under that spell um do you feel like 
what do you, how do you feel about Allison today? Like, do you mm-hmm. feel like empathy for her? Like she was, you know, everything she did was because she was under this spell that you experienced or do you feel differently? Oh, it's mixed because okay. I think that there's a part of me that feels sympathetic towards her because I do know that she was a different person when she entered Nexium than when she left. And yeah, that that is due to what she went through. And that's really, I, I blame Keith ultimately for that. For sure. Uh, yeah. Because it was all his doing and mm-hmm. all his objectives. And so I think that she's a broken person. I don't know how, um, how much of that was due to her past or due to mm-hmm. what she experienced in Nexium. Like I can't say because I didn't know her before. Um, but I do think that anybody who interacted with Keith Ranieri is ultimately a victim in some way because yeah. he just took from people however yeah. he could. And Allison took it to another level. Mm-hmm. And she was very cruel to me and to the other women involved. And that was something that she that she's going to have to deal with. And, and there's cruel and then there's crimes. And there are things that she did that were criminal and that she's being charged for. And I don't know what her sentencing will be or when it will be. Um, mm-hmm. But she is going to have to face those consequences because it took her a very long time. Uh, And I don't even know if she's fully really come to terms with what she's done. Do you know if she still like professes allegiance? You know, I don't because I don't have any contact with her or anyone who has contact with her because of the court order. Yeah. But from, and this is just my intuition, but from a few photos that I saw of her online, she still looked very like gone and kind of disconnected. Yeah. And that made me both sad for her because I was really hoping that maybe she could come out of this and and see the truth. But it's so much of an individual choice. Like you have to want to confront the truth and it's really scary and and it's hard. Well, and she to me seemed like the most like the most far gone, if you will, you know. Well, Nikki Klein, too. Yeah. Oh, Nikki. I mean. Yeah. What was so sad for me is I watched the Dateline documentary yeah. and Nikki Klein said that she was now uh, working as a barista um, and that she, not that that's a bad job or anything. But no, I had that, that job was, too. I was a barista too at one point. Yeah. And, but like just the fact that she basically said she was like financially completely ruined. Right. Yeah. And had no, essentially, no career path, no professional skills. She's like almost 40 now. That's just so sad and also hearing that um that danielle roberts the doctor was mm-hmm. like broke from this whole thing and financially ruined too yeah i mean they were they were struggling financially before nexium crumbled anyways just to set the record straight mm. but they were also like this did not help and right. this this didn't like it's so hard to one leave a high control group or a cult mm-hmm. and and to start your life and have to deal with all of the, you know, the damages that come with that. Because a lot of the time people just denounce their families. They let go of their careers. They don't have any money because they've given it all to the cult. And that's really what has happened in this situation is they have devoted their lives and their, their lifeblood to supporting this man. And because of that, they're now even more destitute than before that should say something that should Mm -hmm. be a red flag. 
Like, why yeah. would you that that's not a healthy relationship. And that's what makes it, I'm sure, so hard to leave is you've given everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in our Do case, you... we were collateralized. So there's oh, yeah. that on top that's, of it. Yeah. Right. Do you know if he is still trying to control them from prison? I wouldn't put it past him. Yeah. I mean, clearly he's an extreme narcissist. Like, yeah. narcissist doesn't even seem to like Sociopath. scratch the surface. So, of course, that's probably like one of the last gratifications he has is the fact that he can still or potentially, you know, allegedly could still control people from inside prison. Yeah. And, and and he has been able to do that the entire time. I don't know what he is able to, like, what his capacity for contact is now because he's just been taken to another prison, which is in, um, I think, Tucson, Arizona. It's a sec- specifically a sex offender unit. Oh, okay. Oh, interesting. Um, and he was taken from, I think he was, he was moved from Brooklyn to another place in, in Pennsylvania and then taken to Arizona. Um, so it might be more difficult for him to keep in contact with his supporters at this point, mm-hmm. but he's very clever at that. And I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't put it past him to be able to achieve that in one, you know, one way or another. Yeah. I haven't heard a peep from what's going on with Claire Bronfman though. So that's interesting. Weird. Okay. One other person that I'm dying to get your take on is Nancy Salzman <laughs> because she's mm-hmm. like, for me, it's very unclear. Like everyone else seems like they were a victim. But yeah. Nancy, I can't decide if she was a willing, like genius calculating co-conspirator mm-hmm. or if she was also a victim of his. What do you think? I go back and forth too. And Interesting. I actually knew Nancy pretty well. Okay. But I also know that there were things that she did not know about DOS for a long time. I'm oh, not really. I don't want to give her a get out of jail free card yeah. at all because there is a plenty of shit that Nancy Salzman knew about that she concealed way before my time, even. Yeah. And she was a part of that core group that really did know about Keith's behavior. And uh, when it came to underage girls and his sexual deviant behavior in general, I'm I am pretty clear Nancy Salzman was aware of that. Yeah. And but I felt for her because when everything was crumbling around, it was almost like she was, you know, the last one to the party. And uh, and Keith was like, oh, yeah, now there's DOS. Sorry, your whole company is imploding because of it. Mm-hmm. Like, that was kind of the tone. And, and so there was a part of me that felt like, oh, wow, she really didn't know. But there was so much that she knew about when also tax evasion cash that they were moving from mexico she had a whole bunch of cash you know stashed in her home that at the time they were telling us that that was planted by the fbi which makes me laugh oh my gosh i when you know flash forward a year later when i'm not in albany anymore and i'm working with the fbi and they're like so what did you think about all the money that they that we collected from nancy salzman's house and i'm like oh yeah they told me that was fake they're like (laughs) really (laughs) how did right how did they think that we seized it from the house like that's the level of distortion that that these groups are capable of doing and if you're somebody who is you know not trying to be combative or trying to be supportive of the group you'll go along with that yeah yeah i know i i I don't know i think i think she is sorry i think she is um 
somebody who deserves to be charged with certain crimes because she was definitely a participant in those. Do I think that she is at the level of Keith or Claire even? I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. And Oh, so you think there's a difference between Nancy and Claire? I do. What's that difference? I think what Claire did was with her money was so irresponsible and dangerous because she was she she is the reason why Nexium was able to sustain itself. Like right. it wasn't yeah. solely through, you know, customers. Right. <laughs> it was because she was bankrolling it. And she was bankrolling all of Keith's projects. Nancy Salzman was a supporter, but she was really more connected to the operations of the company and kind of giving classes and teaching classes. And I think that there was a part of her that actually really believed that she was doing good. And you mm-hmm. could say that for anyone except for Keith. Because yeah. um, I think Keith knew what he was doing and mm-hmm. other mm-hmm. people were scandals. Oh, you do? Oh, yeah. You. So you don't think that he was in any way buying his own bullshit? Oh, I think he did. But I also but- think there was a part of him that knew. I don't think he bought it to the extent that he thought he was a good guy. Right. I think okay. he knew okay. I think he bought it that he believed that he was superior like sorry that he is superior in the way that he thinks. I, I even remember him telling me that his indoctrination was superior to my mother's because he really believed that he was that outstanding. Yeah. I mean, he's the smartest. What was the IQ thing in the Guinness yeah. Book of World Records? That's yeah, like that's not real. Copy. Yeah. <laughs> but I, so, but I do believe that he is just, but that at his core, it was all nefarious because even 20 mm-hmm. years before DOS was created, he was giving master slave contracts to women that he was in relationships <gasps> with. What? Yeah, that didn't make it into the documentary, uh, but wait. that was something oh that I gosh. learned while we were filming. So he like was the, go, go ahead, ahead. Jen. No, you go ahead. Well, so he was he was enslaving women and, you know, obviously very much wanting to have them under his thrall yeah. for forever. As long as, you know, as long as basically he was an adult. It was clearly a pattern of behavior. Yeah. Wow. One one thing that I you know, that I've read a lot on the Frank report about is his relationship with the Fernandez sisters. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you were aware of that whole situation, if you, um, if you know them or, and, and like basically, cause that's probably, I think some of the darkest stuff that I read about. It is. Um, you know, there was so much that I was not aware of when it came to them. And I do know them and I know one of them, um, more closely and I'm very protective of them because mm-hmm. I really consider them to be victims of Keith and yeah. he, he, uh, he destroyed yeah. he destroyed their family and thank God that there's a lot of love in that family and they're you know working to repair it and that though that they're strong women and they're also you know trying to put their lives back together yeah. and I feel for them so much and I there there was I didn't even know about the Daniela like the extent of what Daniela mm-hmm. had went through until the trial. Like that's how well it was concealed from me. Who I did know that, but it's it's like hard to actually even say because there were things that I knew, but I never actually knew the real story. Like they had told a tale of how 
their parents just dropped them off here in Albany and that the Albany community took them in to take care of them. And that's oh, a wow. very, very, very different story yeah. than what, what the truth was and that what well, came out during the trial. Like Lauren Salzman was basically like – like she was – Daniela was imprisoned in a room for like almost two years and mm-hmm. Lauren Salzman was like keeping her in that room. Yeah, right? I didn't know any of that until after I had left. And then Camilla is the 15th, the one who was mm-hmm. at 15 that Keith assaulted or, you know, started his relationship with when he was like in his 40s. And, you know, he basically destroyed her. Anyway, like her her experience, both – I just feel so much for that family. And, and it I, was so painful to, to read our victim impact statements because they both read before I did. And like, oh, thank, really? Yeah, and thank God I we were all wearing masks because it was COVID, and I just mm-hmm. used it as like a tissue collector. And <sighs> like my tears were filling up my mask. Yeah. And I was just like, this is so painful because they were so raw and so detailed about their experience and really, really brave. Yeah, absolutely. So harrowing. Wow. Oh. So that's, uh, a, that's a lot to ask someone to do. Mm-hmm. And and obviously it was their choice. They didn't have to do that. They felt compelled to do it. And I think for me it was really healing, even though it was scary as shit. But mm-hmm. it's um, I think what they went through is is a lot. And I think that really they just deserve their their privacy and their time to heal and put their family back together in peace. Yeah, right? absolutely, absolutely. Um. Well, okay. So moving on from them. Um. And this is okay. So, kind of get, getting into like the darkest stuff of it. One of the things that you said in your memoir was that Keith was like talking at one point a lot about the nobility of dying for a cause or mm-hmm. being willing to. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was instructing you guys to like watch documentaries and read about like Gandhi and Jesus. And my question for you is, what do you think Keith's ultimate end game was? Mm. It took me a while to really allow myself to admit that um, because that was a scary thing to see that I was, I had put myself in a situation where that was even an option, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I, and I think ultimately it, his sort of psychopath brain wanted world domination or something. He wanted ultimate mm-hmm. power and control and if that meant controlling human beings and also being able to indoctrinate them into his beliefs to support and to promote and to recruit, that's what he wanted. And I think he looked at DOS as a political tool and a way for him to have more control. Yeah, I mean, that was that was one of the most um, also like shaking parts of it or um, like disturbing parts of it was he was talking a lot about how like there were going to be women in government who were part Mm -hmm. of DOS who he could control. And I guess, do you have any insight to what, like, let's say he did have, you know, let's say Elizabeth Warren was, you know, secretly in DOS or whatever. Like, what would he be, what would, like, what are his political, what's his political stuff that he wants to push through? Or is it just control? Sorry, this is a very crazy question. No, this is a really interesting question. I've never been asked this before. And I I think that, uh, I mean, his political views were really pretty wretched when when I stripped them Mm -hmm. (laughs) of all of his, 
you know, word salad and whatever yes. it was. And, and the all word the word salad. The word salad that he was trying insane. to. It's insane. It's a lot. It's like, yeah. what are we, what are you even saying? And I can't yeah. believe I actually used to think that this was made sense. But <laughs> um, I think it's really all ultimately comes down to power and control. And he just thought that politics and money and all of that was going to get him that. And well, in some ways it did because he did control a lot of people's lives and he's still controlling people's lives without them being conscious of it. Yeah. Right. I mean, even yeah. just thinking about what he says about rape and assault, like those mm-hmm. ethics that he kind of, um, that he like hangs his hat on. It's, it's so horrifying that like, not moral. Yeah. It's no, it's not. Um, and, and but the way that he sells it and the way that he manipulates it's manipulates um his words and and the way that he speaks about it it's like you think you're ta- you're hearing from this like enlightened being who's able to like like s- almost be amoral about these very very wrong mm-hmm. things mhm yeah and that's the the scary part and i yeah. think the part that people think that they're immune to <laughs> um which you're, we're not. Mm-hmm. I don't think that anyone is immune to influence. I think we just need to be more aware of who we're letting influence us. Right. Yeah. So, and certainly, don't let's not vote for any potential senators wearing a sash, guys. <laughs> yeah. Beware. Red flag. Red flag. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um. You know, one of the questions I also had for you was like. Where do you think that his hatred of women comes from? Because mm-hmm. that was so abundantly clear mm-hmm. to me was that he he was like the original incel. Like he hated yeah. women so yeah. much. He wanted to torture them. He wanted to completely dominate and control them. And he, all of the SOP doctrine was so <sighs> against women. And mm-hmm. so do you have any insight into that? I do. Um, I think that he is a misogynist through and mm-hmm. through. Yeah. I think he thinks that women are subhuman. Um, yeah. I think that he is the type of person that is incredibly insecure mm-hmm. and is so needy for mm-hmm. people's approval and this feeling of being desired and wanted that he will treat people however he feels. And I think that there's a, probably a lot more people like that in the world than we think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so thankfully, the world is shifting and we're experiencing a lot of social change and more equality and just general res- human respect mm-hmm. and decency. So I'm happy about that. But I will say that that type of mindset and that type of mentality does exist in the world and so it's good to be aware and to not pretend like it's you know completely gone (laughs) right Mm -hmm. because we're you know we see it a lot in positions of power sadly but Mm -hmm. I think that that's just part of how he developed and that either it was through mental illness or personal experiences. Like I, I could say a lot of things about him and, and what I know about him, it, it, like from his body to his height, to the way that he speaks, to the way that he carries himself. Like he's not an atypical male. Like he's not the guy that you would go, oh yeah, he's, he's my type. Yeah. 
Like yeah. it was, he, it was probably a rough go on the dating scene for Keith. And I think like, I hate making jokes about it or making light, but like, that's probably why he went to the extremes that he went to, to control and capture and feel loved by people right. was because he was partly incapable. Totally. Absolutely. I think like his physical, his physicality, that to me was the biggest indicator that he probably had major issues, like essentially, um, you know, with women in the past and probably experienced a lot of rejection as yes. in his early adulthood. Mm-hmm. That, yes. And not to be an armchair psychologist, but a lot of times like that is where hatred of women comes from. It's men yes. feeling like they're entitled to women's affections and when they don't come, you know. You can see it in all those true those true crime documentaries with with rapists with murderers mm-hmm. it's like this exactly. compulsion um that comes from that deep deep place yeah absolutely um one of the, i guess that deep of, wound yeah totally, totally. But it doesn't i mean you're also talking about somebody who doesn't have empathy so that that's another factor where they're looking at people as objects as ut- utilities Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. do you think then that he is a full-on sociopath and oh, actually yes. doesn't experience empathy for other people? Yes, a hundred percent. I have no doubt about that because before I like before I went through the whole trial and I you know I was a cooperating witness for nine months and then you know finishing up by reading my victim impact statement to his face. There was a lot of time where I went back and forth and I was trying to reconcile like what I really believed about him and his pathology. And Mm -hmm. when I, when I got to the point where we were all reading our statements and he was going to be sentenced and that he still continued to call us liars Mm -hmm. and, and and say that what we were saying was untrue and that we had just sort of changed our minds about him all of a sudden, I thought, I was like, this is unreal. Like it almost, it almost didn't even make me angry. It was like, I needed that confirmation that this human being is not a human being. Like, right. Yeah. And that's a scary thing, but also a really kind of calming thing because I went back off of the podium. I sat down on the bench behind my friend. We looked at each other and I was like, wow, okay. I know who I'm dealing with. Mm -hmm. So it's like better to know. So did he ever show any emotion? He, it was all fake. (laughs) Oh, okay. So he, but yeah. he was emoting on some level. Well, it wasn't emoting. It was more like he was taking notes to pass to his lawyer. And then he kind of put on this, like, I'm this martyr lamb thing to the judge when it was his time to respond. He was like, I'm so sorry that I caused the, them pain now. And I'm like, now? Really? You think like all of a sudden we just decided all 15 of us that right. are here today and everybody else who was a cooperating witness to this trial just decides now that you're an asshole? Like, no, that's not how it works. <laughs> I mean, it's the most classic non-apology apology. I know. Yeah. Exactly. It was insulting, but it was yeah. also really clarifying. Yeah. There's this famous case about this doctor who ruined a bunch of women's or people's lives, essentially. Um, and he was like doing it all for money. And at his trial, he breaks down and he's like, I'm so sorry. I let greed completely like turn me into a horrible person. You're and not talking about Larry Nasser, are you? You're talking about someone else? No, someone else. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's a it's a podcast called um, – it's called uh, Dr. Death. I was going to say, yeah. Okay. 
It's really good. Highly recommend. But um, but what you're saying is that didn't happen. There was no sort of like c- coming to terms, actual genuine visible breakdown, seeing no. what he'd done at all. No, and I think that's actually partly why he got the sentencing that he received. Because yeah. initially the judge when he was, calc- you know, and this is all legal stuff that I, that's beyond me. But when he was calculating what his sentencing could be in theory, it was more like 58 years. Okay. Mm-hmm. And he got a 120-year sentence. So that yeah. shows you that this is a human being that is dangerous for society. Mm-hmm. This is somebody without remorse. This is mm-hmm. someone who, if they are let out, will continue to do the same thing that they have done always. And yeah. that's why... Yeah. The justice system is so amazing when it works well mm-hmm. because it actually is there to protect us. And it helps me sleep better at night knowing that. Yeah. I mean, I was going to ask, like, do you feel – so you feel safer now, of course, because he's behind bars. Like, he doesn't have, like, you know, the same – obviously, he's probably still trying to lead the, the few members that are still there. But, Which you know, you feel sad. much better. Yeah, and it makes me sad that they still don't have their lives to the. Yeah, they just don't have their lives back because there are people who are still loyal to that. To there are people who are still loyal to Keith, who were my friends, like Ugh. dear friends, mm-hmm. and so that's devastating to me. And I I really hope that there comes a time where they they feel like they can address that mm-hmm. and and move on. But no, there was no there was no other. <laughs> remorse on, on yeah. his part. So that actually brings me to a big question that our listeners had. Um, so they wanted to talk about two things. One is your light bulb moment when you realized that Nexium that you were in a cult or this wasn't something that you thought it was. Um, and then the second thing that I wanted to know was how to talk to someone who is in a toxic mm. system uh-huh. um, and try to in some way, you know, try to get them out of it. Great questions. Um, well, I did not have a light bulb moment. I really okay. wish that I had because it would have made things a lot easier, I think, if I had had just that boom, like moment of clarity where everything made sense. And yeah, I, I you know, some people do say that they had that. And that's, that can be a tricky and very, very fragile place to be. Because I know for myself, I had many aha moments and they kind of came one after another in stages. And I think that was my way of my psyche kind of protecting itself from having Mm -hmm. a more like psychotic break in in all honesty. Because when you have those big boom realizations, it can really fuck you up. Like it changes the whole foundation of how you think the world works who to trust, what you believe, your own sense of your own memory. Like there's a lot Mm -hmm. that I had to confront, but I did it in stages in like one realization after another through working with people and, and speaking with a deprogrammer. I mean, I worked with a woman initially right when I was um, like in my job in New York city and when all of the press was coming out and I was trying to reconcile and, and, come back together with my mom. And so I, I worked with this woman, Diane Benscooter, who is a deprogrammer and she helped mediate for my mom and I so that we could actually communicate because it was like we were speaking different languages. Mm-hmm. And I just, we just didn't get each other at that point. And so she helped me tremendously. And so I had many moments of just realizing 
wow, what just happened in the last seven years of my life? And, mm-hmm. and then through writing, because I wasn't really capable of talking about a lot of things for mm-hmm. a while, like, like physically incapable. There are things that I just could not get out of my throat. And, mm-hmm. and so when I, when it came to starting to deconstruct everything, writing was most personal and most private and felt safest because yeah. I had been living under so much, um, repression and suppression of my one emotions my own thoughts and feelings and then those were supplemented with all of the other things that they wanted me to believe so there was really little me in there in the mix Mm -hmm. and so what this woman did was she helped me re-engage my critical thinking so that I could actually have an opinion of my own that I could actually think for myself and and begin to think for myself and I think I didn't believe that that was possible, that I could even lose that capacity, right. but I had. And you you spent so much time being told that you weren't good enough and that you didn't have those natural abilities on your own. Right. Yeah. And, and that was very, that very much came from Allison. Um, <sighs> so that, that really screwed me up for a long time. And so it's taken me one, writing a book, <laughs> producing a documentary, speaking about these things, you know, to hundreds of people at this point to really feel like I've been able to reprogram myself and, mm-hmm. and to believe and think the way that I want to think. And I w- will say that I'm still very, very much healing. Like mm-hmm. I, yeah. I struggle a lot and some days are more difficult than others, but that all of this has helped me to really just be able to think and, and, understand the dynamic and the situation that I was in and I guess that leads me to the second question about how to talk to somebody who is in a a toxic environment or a toxic system and I think it's a lot to do with respect and knowing Mm. that there are things that that they can educate you in and that can be an entry point into reestablishing the relationship so if you have a loved one who is maybe with an abusive, you know, partner, or is in a toxic work environment, or is in a cult, like many people who message me have loved ones that are still stuck in cults. Mm -hmm. I think being able to go to that person and say, hey, I'm here for you, first of all, never lose contact. If Mm -hmm. this is an important person, stay connected, even if it means that they're still in, they know that you're there, and that's not time wasted. So don't lose that. That's, that's your lifeline. Don't fuck that up, even though right. I know that it's hard to like bite your tongue sometimes when you know that something is not good for someone. Sometimes it's better to just hold and pause and just let them know that you're there. Right. Then on top of it, you can ask them to maybe inform you about the things that you might not know about what they're doing. So like, hey, what is this group that you're even involved in? Can mm-hmm. you teach me about it? And then starting that conversation helps them not be on the defense Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because usually and I know from my own experience when somebody started to question me immediately I thought they're going to tell me that I'm wrong and then they're going to tell me that I'm stupid and they're going to tell me that this is all bad when when that's not always true because there are always things that you can that you can get out of any situation that are both negative and positive so you have to be able to look at that too (laughs) and evaluate Mm -hmm. for yourself but 
but you can help them evaluate it along the way by just gently asking questions. Obviously, all of that doesn't matter if someone is in danger. Yeah. So if somebody is in danger and they are potentially going to hurt themselves or hurt somebody else, you need to intervene and hopefully with a professional. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that I'm just speaking for is, you know, those are two separate things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just think it's so important what you're saying about like kind of meeting someone where they're at, you yes. know, and like that's, that's everything in order to make that person feel like you, that they're in a safe place and that like they're in a trusted space. Totally. And really, if you're talking to somebody who is coming out of trauma or in an abusive dynamic, they are in fight or flight most Mm -hmm. of the time. So you have to really recognize where they are. And like you said, meet them where they're at. They are used to being forced and controlled and manipulated. Don't do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's it seemed like when I read your in the book, Um, it seemed like for you that you were kind of in that space. You're in like a safe space of trying to protect Allison by taking the hard drive, making sure that you took basically anything that could be sensitive to try to protect her. And they were Mm -hmm. kind of in that safety when you actually heard Keith say in his own voice that the brand was going to be his initials. Mm -hmm. Um, Was that for you like the first kind of nudge that, that what you believed was not what it what that things were not what you believed well those were two separate moments when i found the flash drives i was still in um in new york i was in brooklyn Mm -hmm. specifically and i was moving out of her apartment in the middle of the night and i was still very much you're you're absolutely correct i was in a protecting her mode when i grabbed them i thought oh she might need these later Mm -hmm. then i didn't look at or listen to those for months until I moved back to California. I had driven across country with my now fiance and I was unpacking at my mom's house and I just pulled them out. And I thought, oh, well, maybe I'll just see what's on them. And that's when I heard in Keith's own words that the brand was his initials. And that confirmation was a huge moment for me. So if you want to talk about light bulbs, that was a light bulb. Mm. (laughs) And it was sort of like, holy shit. I can never go back to waffling or thinking or giving this guy the benefit of the doubt. It was over. So, you know, to kind of go full circle here, there are certain things that are just definitive truths. And once you Mm -hmm. know them, you know them and you will not be able to go back. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I think that that for, that is one thing that you kind of need to figure out for yourself And Mm -hmm. it means doing some investigating or maybe confronting very uncomfortable conversations with yourself or with other people. But it's clear. When it's clear, it's clear. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Do you – obviously, you supplied that to the FBI, the the hard drives. And it seems like those are pretty critical, um, you know, pieces of evidence. Do you feel like things could have been different for you if you hadn't found that hard drive and hadn't turned it over? You know, I've thought about that. I I do think that what I gave them was very valuable along with my, you know, nine months of testimony. Right. But there yeah. were many other people who also contributed enormous amounts of evidence oh, really? and okay. also testimony and helped the prosecution a lot. And mm-hmm. they were doing that even before I was on the scene. And so I came a little later. And yes, you could theorize that things could have gone differently for me, but now knowing more I, that 
about how the legal system works, they were, they had, the government had a line of victim and perpetrators. And it was very clear to them. And thank God that was not something that I or other people had to decide. And that's up to them. But that's all based on evidence. And that's Mm -hmm. all based on other people's cooperating testimonies. So Mm -hmm. if you're on the right side, and you're on the side of, you know, being a victim of the situation, which a majority of us were, then that's clear to the government by the time that they even bring you in. Does that make sense? It does, but it just makes me curious how someone like Nikki Klein or how um, the doctor, I think Danielle, 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 how Danielle, how they've not been, because they were first line. So how they Mm -hmm. never. No, actually only Nikki was. Danielle was not first line. Danielle was in my group. So Danielle was kind of on the same level. But I will say in, in, in defense of the prosecution, they pick and choose who they think are the most dangerous. So really like, Charging somebody with criminal charges is a big fucking deal. Right. Like yeah. you need to have so much evidence and so much other things in order in order for that to happen that they can't just be arbitrarily deciding like, oh, well, she was kind of a bitch. Maybe we'll throw her into the loop. Like that's just not <laughs> yeah. how it works. And so like that's why when I knew that it was my duty to be a co- to cooperate when I figured out the truth. Like I just took it as my job and Mm -hmm. they all had the option to do that. Everyone was given that option and it was their choice to not. Mm, So that's really on them. And it's also the choice of the government to charge somebody accordingly. And Mm -hmm. they, they, they're aware, they're aware of Nikki. They're aware of Danielle. They're, you know, they know what they're doing. Well, yeah, I mean, there's still, what, what do you think of the dossier project? Devastating. Dossier. It's so devastating to me. I could barely read it. Like yeah. somebody sent, I think it was actually Sarah Edmondson. She sent it to me and, and I was like, oh my God, just like my heart dropped into my guts. I just felt like, oh, this is not good because they're still just trying to defend something that's ultimately hurting them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's so sad. It's so sad to to watch those videos, those interviews, because it's just clear that they're, you know, not. It's clear that they're still so deeply in it, yeah. and not. Yeah. They don't have volition and control and self possession of themselves. No, and and that's the part that's so sad is because I remember feeling and thinking exactly that way. Like, yeah, totally. I, I and and I look at. I mean, I took a glimpse of the website. I couldn't watch the videos. Yeah. And I just thought, I thought, like, wow, this could be me. Like, yeah, this could really be me. And and so I sympathize for them because I know what it's like to feel the way that they're feeling. But I also know that at this point, it is not my job to change their minds. That has to come from them. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um. Chan, did you have any more questions? Yeah, I was just going to say to that to that end you mentioned Sarah Edmus- Edmondson. Um, so do you still keep in contact with with like other, you know, disaffected members? Is that helpful for you or do you know, did you kind of have to take a break and put some space between you and other people? All of the above. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I I these are people I've known since I was 19 years old right. and some of them are friends and really close friends who have defected who I mm-hmm. you know, I'm in contact with regularly. Then there's other people who I'm more in contact with 
professionally mm-hmm. and like we work together with different experts and whatnot and so that's a different kind of relationship but yeah. I I absolutely need breaks and I yeah. I have yeah. to separate that part of my life and just create distance and boundaries for myself so there yeah. are other people who I just choose to not relate to anymore because it's like a different life now in in many ways Right. And and what was the process of reentering normal life like for you? I mean, like, I, I, I don't know about your day to day. I know it was obviously very intensive when you were in Albany and everything. But like, you know, something simple, like, could you go get your nails done? Like, I don't know, like, what was, yeah. what was reentering having it, your days back? That was weird. And it was hard. And it's still hard. Um, I think because I was so used to a very structured and regimented life, yeah, have, having downtime was like excruciating for me. Mm-hmm. And, and it brought up a lot of really uncomfortable feelings. And I think, yeah, I could, you know, I could get my nails done. I could go, <laughs> I could go shopping at the grocery store, but there wasn't real freedom because all yeah. of those things had to be, I had to ask permission to do a majority mm-hmm. of the things. So that's not real life. That's yeah. like an utterly abnormal experience of life a restricted Mm -hmm. life that is a life of imprisonment and that's a life of you know and why I've been so vocal and involved in a lot of human trafficking projects because I I see it so clearly there but this is something that was happening in the suburbs so if it's happening to me in the suburbs it could happen to anybody anywhere not just right. someone who's being trafficked in a third world country or trafficked in the US, which is, mm-hmm. you know, we're talking about billions of dollars worth of industry of trading of human beings, which right. is such an awful and it's a human rights issue. Mm-hmm. And so that's something where I've put a lot of my energy towards because I can relate and I can sympathize and I can understand the, the system, even though I had a different and unique experience. Yeah. So at re-entering normal life has been bumpy. Um, I've had a lot of, I've had to do a lot of work to understand like what the root of my panic attacks are, the anxiety, mm-hmm. the the depression, all things that are actually very normal for people who experience trauma. Um, and some days I'm like, why is this still a problem? Mm, yeah. <laughs> like, why am I still, why? And I, I like, I'm grabbing my head right now, but I'm like, why are you still fucking torturing me? Like, that's how it feels when I'm having an emotionally, emotionally erratic day. Mm. And then I, then I have to like sit with myself and breathe. And my, my fiance Patrick is so gentle and kind with me. He understands Mm. it very well now. And he's like, it's okay. Like everything's okay. We're all good right now. And he has to like kind of bring me back into the moment Mm -hmm. of where I am because when you have a flashback or you have a PT- PTSD trigger, it's like you're almost there in the past, but in your current state. Yeah. I don't know. If, do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like totally. you're there, but you're not there and you don't have all your wits about you. And so yeah. I have been um, just having to learn to navigate all of that. Most days I have really good days, but um there's stuff that I still deal with, like even just stuff with my body and uh, the long-term effects of having such a low weight and no period. And mm-hmm. will I be able to conceive? And mm-hmm. will I be able to have that kind of life option if I want it? And so those are real things that I have yeah. to deal with. And, I, and I'm and i just so grateful and so lucky to have 
the family that I have and the support that I have and the access to things that I really, most people don't have when they come out of experiences like this. And it's why I've been so focused on my activism and my work with different charity groups, because I want to be able to make sure that resources are available because that's really the only way that I've been able to have my life back. Right. Well, I just want to say that, you know, you you come across so poised, articulate, yeah. elegant. You've written a really masterfully written memoir. And so I Thank think you. that you're being so vulnerable <laughs> about how you're still, you know, it's still it's still a struggle and there's still, you know, it's not like you're completely on the other side. I just think that that's, thank you for being so vulnerable. Cause I think that, you know, that's so helpful for other people who maybe didn't go through the same thing you did, but who are still, you know, trying to heal from their own traumas. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. It's- and I, I never want to present a false narrative. Like I yeah. even try to be as real as I can on social media and I hate social media and I really am trying to be like active because I'm seeing it as a tool, but I'm yeah. like an introvert and I'm like, everyone leave me alone. But I, uh, I, I'm enjoying that kind of community that's being built and that I hope that that comes across, that people know that this is very, it's very normal to feel these things to, and that you're not alone. And yeah. so thank you. I, I, I try to, I try to make sure that that's, that's clear. Well, thank you so much, India, for coming on the pod. This has been an incredible almost hour and 10 minutes. So I want to be respectful of your time, but thank you so much. I mean, I truly appreciate it. It's such a, such a great hour with you. You are (laughs) so impressive. I mean, I'm just like, I'm smiling and I'm just so like happy that we got to chat with you. And I think you just give a lot of people, I'm sure a lot of hope. Thank so, you absolutely. for saying that. I feel like we could have talked for hours. Yes, if there's actually, if there's any follow up questions from the listeners, I'd be happy to come back. Oh my gosh! <laughs> but, but, um, Amazing. But they might have had enough of me, so no. I, I won't be offended. <laughs> Wait. Okay. No, that's good to know because I literally have like three pages of questions. But I was like, Chandler, do you have any more questions? Because I know I've like basically well, dominated. So no. I'm sorry. No. No, no. Maybe we can do like an Instagram live or something like that um, yeah, at, a, oh at a later point. I'm, I'm going to be on the road for the next two weeks because we're traveling in our truck. Uh, my my fiance built out the back of our eight foot Ram truck. Oh and so we're, we're sleeping in there with the cats and we're traveling down through Jacksonville and taking the 10 all the way back to LA. We did it coming here to PA and Pennsylvania and it was really hard. So we're trying to get more organized this time. <laughs> wow. Um, that's amazing. I'll be on the road a- for a little while, but then when I'm back and settled in LA, we can, we can uh, organize from there. Definitely. Okay. We'll definitely take you up on that and have the best road trip. Yes. Thank, thank you. Enjoy it. it. Yeah. So thank good you, to meet you. you both. So lovely. So good to meet you too. Hi. Bye. Bye. That's all for now, folks. Don't forget, give us a five-star review. Hit us up on Instagram at popapologists, and we will see you next week, live every Wednesday. Do you ever worry about running out of interesting things to say to friends when you actually get to see them? Then we've got the perfect podcast for you. I'm Eve Yohalem, and each week on Book Dreams, my co-host Julie Sternberg and I use books to explore fascinating questions, like 
What happened when a Harvard professor staked her reputation on an alleged gospel of Jesus' wife that turned out to be fake? And how did debut author Tom Lynn save the American Western by blowing it to bits? Are pigeons rats with wings or wonder birds? And what's the who, what, when, where, how, and especially why of books bound in human skin? Recent and upcoming Book Dreams highlights include conversations with Booker Prize-winning author Marlon James, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Catherine Schultz, and Merlin scholar Dr. Laura Campbell. You can listen to Book Dreams wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone. I'm Emily Beerley. And I'm Jennifer Chaikin. And we're licensed marriage and family therapists, owners of the therapy group, and hosts of the Shrink Chicks podcast. Every week, we bring you a new episode where we dive into therapeutic topics like inner child work, dating anxiety, family dynamics, relationships, and burnout, making them more relatable and understandable, leaving the psycho babble behind. We address the things you've been dying to ask your therapist but don't know how and work to help you stop shooting all over yourself with the expectations society can put on us. Tune in every Monday to Shrink Chicks on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Be sure to follow along and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Prepare to learn all about you because in order to grow yourself, you gotta know yourself. 